Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Hannah Blackiston. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, I'll be talking to ex-ABC boss Michelle Guthrie about the future of TV advertising. How do you actually get the best out of that from a from an audience perspective, from an advertiser perspective and from an operator perspective? Cuts at the ABC. It's really a shame for the audience um, and particularly audiences that didn't traditionally come to the ABC and her career obituary. It took 83 years. I hope it doesn't take another 83 years for the next female managing director. And we'll be talking to comedian Mikey Robbins about his new book. I really like digging up dirty old stories from the past. And his career in the media. Media is full of rogues and I suppose I was one of them. But first, the week's topics. Is it time to break up Facebook and Google? TV ratings finally get back on track from their hacking disaster. Tough times at Omnicon and IPG. And a brand reboot for Optus. So as we were chatting about last week, TV ratings have been somewhat in disarray since provider Nielsen got hacked. But Hannah, we're back on track now? We're almost back on track now. So the ratings went down on the 21st of July um, and only started to be released this week on the 29th. Or they did manage to save all the data for those days. So we haven't lost anything, but it's being rolled out in quite a slow schedule, two days of data per day. They have kind of managed to get ahead of that. So in theory, we should be back on track by Friday this week um, when it was initially meant to be the weekend. But yeah, we'll see. Let's hope there's no no more tech problems following that. Because I remember reading a report in TV tonight that it was getting quite worrying because the boxes only have seven days worth of data. And I guess it's a bit like the black box on a plane. It only records a certain amount before it writes over it. So they were genuinely at risk of actually never knowing um, how Big Brother uh, did for the final episode. And can you imagine how Seven would have responded to that? Yeah, I think there was some fear out there, but they have managed to get everything. And we now know how Big Brother finished. It closed to 876,000 Metro viewers, which if you look at the series average, that's a pretty high result, but it isn't a series high and it isn't enough to kind of hit those top performers across the year, like your Lego Masters and your MasterChefs and your Maths. Um, But I think Seven will probably be pretty happy with it. As I said, it topped the series average. So that was Big Brother. Um, Other shows, uh, Ninja came back for nine. Yeah, so Australian Ninja Warrior and Farmer Wants a Wife for Seven both came back on the same night. Um, Farmer brought in 900,000 Metro viewers while Ninja peaked at just over a million. But it was in, what was really interesting is in the national audiences, Farmer got ahead. So Farmer pushed to 1.4 million nationally while Ninja delivered 1.37. So while I think you know, Nine will obviously be happy that they beat Farmer in those Metro audiences. And also it's really worth noting that Ninja performs a lot better in the uh, key advertising demographics than Farmer has been to date. It's quite interesting to see that 
considering I can remember last year James saying that it was a bit of a play for, you know, the battlers out in the bush, it's really interesting that that's actually responded correctly and that nationally farmers doing so well. Uh, What was really interesting in the ratings that we've now had released, though, for 10 is there's been a real turn in Bachelor in Paradise. So it always performs quite well in the key demos, but it's had a pretty uh, slow start to its year in 2020. However, on Tuesday night this week, it suddenly leapt up. Uh, about 70,000 viewers in one night from the previous night. That's its biggest audience since 2018, which, yes, it is still only at 570,000 viewers, which puts it well below Ninja and Farmer. But I think for 10, especially as it pushes towards the end of that season and it's hoping to kind of carry that into Bachelor, it's got to be pretty happy with that result. What was also really interesting is then, have you been paying attention, dropped to about 200,000 viewers. And have you been paying attention as a really consistent performer for 10? So I'm not really sure where this has come from. That's like by far the season low for this year and quite low compared to the previous years as well. So I think it'll be interesting to see next week if that manages to continue or if it just had a bad night. Well, uh, and still with TV, um, this is actually quite a big deal. Just before we started recording, uh, a bit of news came through. It looks like um, Seven has got itself some breathing space with the banks. Yeah, it has. So about $450 million worth of Seven's debt was meant to mature in the second half of 2021. Um, But they've managed to amend their $750 million banking facility. And they've pushed that out now. They've pushed it to the second half of of 2022. Um, So yeah, obviously a good bit of breathing room in there. They've also got $250 million worth of liquidity, which gives them some flexibility for this transformation that they're currently in the middle of. Yeah, because I, 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 I suppose the question was, if they couldn't renegotiate the debt, then there would have been a real question about whether they were actually solvent, you know, because that question is, can you repay your debts when they become due? So this actually feels like a really big behind the scenes win for James Warburton, that he's, he's, he's got that breathing room. And I, I suppose what it does set up now is for a whole year's worth of seven telling not just the market but the banks we've got the olympics next year (laughs) definitely and well in the asx announcement about the uh, new facilities they didn't actually say where their current debt level sits at um that's going to come out during the four-year earnings in august uh in august but as of the end of 2019 it was at 540 million so yeah a very sizable chunk of that was suddenly due next year i think they would be in trouble and Brit, still with uh, television, um, a little bit of COVID drama for ABC News Breakfast on Thursday morning. They lost the two main hosts. Yeah, so on Wednesday afternoon after the show obviously went to air, their floor manager got in touch to say, my wife has tested positive to COVID-19. So it was kind of a strange and unexpected turn of events because his wife is, you know, they didn't disclose what industry she works in, but whatever industry it is, she's getting tested regularly as part of her work for COVID and had no symptoms. And this very regular systemic test has come back with a positive result. So the ABC, to their credit, acted really quickly and kind of over and above what they had to. They didn't have to send Lisa Miller and Michael Rowland home and tell them to self-isolate, but that's what they did. So, yeah, there were new hosts in the studio this morning 
and Lisa Miller and Michael Rowland kind of dialed in from home to update the audience as to what was happening and why they weren't there. The thing that struck me in the clip of the two of them, though, was Michael Rowland seemed particularly him. I mean, both him and Lisa obviously spoke, but he seemed particularly really shook up and affected by it. And he was saying, you know, things kind of happened in a flurry and he was up tossing and turning. He was kind of asked jokingly, you know, did you have a sleep in this morning? It's the first time in a long time that you wouldn't have had to get up, you know, for breakfast TV as early as what you usually would. And he said, well, yeah, I had a slight sleep in, but it was me awake tossing and turning. I've been really worried about it. You know, we've been reporting on COVID for months and months and months, but it really feels like it hits close to home when it's someone that you know. And so, yeah, this is, I guess, until um, the floor manager's test results come back. So he's obviously been and got, gotten tested as a result. But, yeah, not in the studio this morning. Yeah, it's funny. I, and, you know, as you know, I sometimes do the newspaper review on News Breakfast, which I've been doing remotely more recently. Um, and, yeah, and the weird thing is, I, I sort of understand where he comes from because Joe is an absolutely lovely guy. He's this beautiful, calming um, presence. Um, he, you can tell he's just beloved by everyone on the show, and they they make him a little bit more part of the show than 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 other shows do. So I think um, you know he's a bit sort of known to the uh, to the readers as well. So um, so yeah, you know, I, I you, you sort of you see the human side when you see how they react to the uh, to the closeness to it. It also didn't feel like oh okay, we really like Joe, the floor manager, and this is his wife, so therefore we care about her by extension. I mean, they were saying like, we love Joe, we love Laura, his wife. So it, it feels like they know her and, you know, have have a relationship with her too. Um, Michael Rowland did mention that, you know, this is kind of part of the ABC's broader COVID plan. So this wasn't kind of a last minute executive scratching their heads as to what to do. They've had this plan in place already. They've already been working in kind of two teams. So they'll have, you know, some people working from a different studio, some people working from home. He mentioned that Lee Sales, the host of 7.30, has, you know, a studio or a little home studio set up at her place. So they both seemed, both him and Lisa Miller, really impressed with how the ABC have handled it and really heaped praise on ABC management, which I'm sure, you know, Gavin Morris and David Anderson and the team would be very pleased to hear after what's been a couple of tough months for the ABC. Next, the return of Michelle Guthrie. So back in 2018, Michelle Guthrie was one of the most talked about media executives in Australia after being sacked as managing director of the ABC. The drama followed a career that's included stints at Foxtel, Star TV in Hong Kong and boss of Google's agency's operation for APAC. She's now joined the board of the Australian ad tech company Hopper, which delivers TV ads to set top boxes, amongst other things. This is her first startup board position. Michelle Guthrie now joins us. Welcome, Michelle, and we will chat about Hopper very shortly. Now, I was listening to a podcast this week with Julia Gillard. Uh, she told Will Anderson that she was very happy that the first line of her, let's call it professional obituary, had already been written. She'll always be the first female Prime Minister of Australia. 
do you think yours has been written? Will you be best known for the unfortunate events at the ABC, do you think? Well, well, I hope my obituary isn't any time soon. Um, but I will say that in the same way that Julia Gillard was the first female prime minister, I was the first female managing director of the ABC. It took 83 years. I hope it doesn't take another 83 years for the next female managing director. But, you know, it was an incredible privilege to have that have that role. Um, and I really took um, the opportunity to to try to transform the organisation to make sure that it was as relevant to my daughters and my daughter's daughters as it was for me growing up. And I thought we actually achieved a lot in the in the time that I was there. Yeah, what 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 would you say was the the key achievement or achievements? Oh, we're, <laughs> I uh, I haven't haven't spoken about this for for quite some time, but I think you know the most important thing was really that transformation to ensure continued relevance, and some of that related to organisational restructures, so um, delivering a content team restructure so that the radio, regional, news and television teams were really merged by genre and you dissolve the traditional silos between platforms. So if you ask an, an ABC audience member, what do you, you know, what do you listen to or watch? It's the ABC. It's not ABC local radio or it's not ABC, you know, Radio National or whatever else. It's the ABC. And so making sure that the ABC was as fit for purpose around being you know, focused on obviously great content, but making sure that those silos were, were um, uh, dissipated as much as possible and also reaching out to make sure that, that the ABC programming um, was where people were. So making sure that the ABC's reach on third-party platforms such as Facebook and YouTube really went from about 2% of Australians to more than 18% of Australians in, in a couple of years was quite an extraordinary achievement. So obviously you'll have seen the recent round of cuts at the ABC and I'm sure you don't want to be one of those people who gives a running commentary on on your successes but as a viewer how does that make you feel Look I mean I think there there's a number of concerns I have about about adequate funding for the ABC um but at the same time you have to deal with resources and, that you're that you're given, and ultimately, it's about making choices and priorities. And all of those choices and priorities are very difficult. I know that you had a, a podcast recently where you talked about ABC Life, and that was a pro, you know a project I think that was incredibly innovative um, and involved a very diverse team. And and you know, while I'm no longer in uh, you know a position to be part of management or decision making at the ABC. It's really a shame um, for the audience, um, and particularly audiences that didn't traditionally come to the ABC. That ABC Life, in particular, won't continue in its current form. And um, I guess with the ABC, the funding can can become and often does become political. Um, and clearly there's a there's, there's a perception that some of the challenge for the ABC in funding now are to do with its relationship with the uh, with the Liberal government. Um, much of the debate around your time was your approach and the chairman at the time, uh, Justin Milne's potential approach to engagement with the government. 
given what's happened since, do you do you feel vindicated? Oh, Tim, look, it's it's really not something that I can can frankly comment on. Um, I do feel that it is important that the ABC has continuous um, and and robust and long term funding in order to deliver for for all Australians. But ultimately, that's an, an issue for current ABC management and, and the government right now. So it's not a no, then. Look, again, I think that the the thing for me is that while I was there, um, I did the best that I could do with funding that we had. Um, there's always more funding required, but you know I'm, I'm a, a realist, as you can see from my commercial background. I you know deal with the, the cards that I was given, and the cards that I was given was still more than a billion dollars a year in funding. And so you have to make choices. And and ultimately, you know, the great thing about the ABC is that it reaches 80% of Australians on a monthly basis and 70% of Australians on a weekly basis. But it's not it's not one thing. Everyone likes a little part of it. So the number of, of people in the audience, uh, you know, ABC viewers and listeners that I would, uh, I would come across and they would say, love what you're doing, just don't touch this or don't touch that and there's always something else yeah <laughs> so someone is yeah. really passionate about something um, and look and I, I will come off the subject in a second but uh maybe the final question on that point is um are you talking that don't touch that one thing were you a fan of the seven forty five a.m bulletin i i i am a fan of the seven forty five bulletin um but i'm a fan of many things at the abc i'm a i'm a great fan of podcasts and i think that the the innovation that the ABC has delivered in podcasts over the last few years is quite extraordinary. I mean, the, the numbers that Richard Feidler gets for conversations is unbelievable. But then you have fantastic new new podcasts like The Pineapple Project and, and Unravel, which were, you know, really developed as a result of, of specific funding set aside for some, some new different kind of kinds of storytelling so you know again you can't please everybody and I won't be pleased by everything that that is started or or stopped at the ABC but you know that's life so and this really will be the last question on the subject <laughs> so as a listener would you would your would, would your one vote as a listener be to keep the 745 bulletin then uh, look my one vote is about making sure that um, you can get amazing news entertainment and and storytelling available in whatever form uh, possible so you know I think that the key thing for most organizations and the ABC is is clearly you know one of those that you you want to be able to make programming that people can can listen to or watch at any given point in time you know on their on their um, own schedule so you know you look at some of the fantastic rn programming that um, was only ever broadcast once now it's all available on podcasts whenever you want it so you know the fact that i can i can dip in and out when i'm walking my dog in the in the afternoon rather than having to make an appointment to to listen is an extraordinary thing and i think you know frankly that's the way in which my my children are going to be listening to to audio broadcasts not the 745 um, news broadcast 
Well, look, uh, as, you, as you allude to, you've, you've, you've got wider commercial experience as well. So as well as the ABC, uh, time with Foxtel, time with Star TV. Um, so you've, you've had an opportunity to see the linear broadcasters adapting to that technological disruption, which, which I guess brings us on to, to Hopper. And um, one of the products is Hopper TV, which is about delivering tailored ads to set-top boxes. Um, so let's talk about that product first of all. How big a part do you think that will play in the future kind of content streaming world? Set-top boxes. Is that a temporary technology or, or, or is that something that's going to be around for a while, do you think? Look, I do think that um, the idea of of on-demand broadcasting and streaming to a television is really the, the future of of uh, broadcasting, no, no question about it. Um, again, the way in which my daughters interact with, with um, you know, video is just very, very different to the way I used to watch one of five channels growing up. Um, and so, you know, knowing that that's the likely future, the, the question is how do you actually get the best out of that from a from an audience perspective, from an advertiser perspective, and from an operator perspective. And so, you know, I, th- I think when you've got tens and hundreds of millions of set-top boxes already in people's homes, that's an amazing connection to, to households. And one of the things I learned in my long time in, in pay TV is that that connection to the subscriber and the viewer is quite extraordinary. Um, you know a lot about those, those, um, those viewers. And they, you know, the, the untapped opportunity is that there hasn't been any addressable advertising solutions for those, for those viewers in the past. And as, Pay TV operators are under increasing and significant financial strain as subscription revenues are under pressure. Then having an ability to open up advertising as an addressable advertising, much more targeted, much more valuable advertising, much more useful to the to both the viewer and the advertiser, becomes much much more critical. So that's where Hopper comes in in being able to. Um, develop that solution that opens up this new untapped revenue stream of local inventory um, for for pay TV operators, but also you know as a way of you know finding much more um, targeted and measurable ROI for for advertisers. Well, we probably should just spell out exactly what it is that Hopper does for anyone who doesn't already know. Well, Tim, Hopper TV really delivers targeted and measurable video um, and display advertising to individual set-top boxes. So it's a complete overlay that doesn't require any integration that means pay TV operators don't need to modify their existing software stack. Um, And Hopper TV supports advanced targeting, including demographics, geolocation, time of day, affinity, and predefined audience sets in in a brand-safe environment. So, you know, ultimately you're delivering this display and video advertising, not interrupting the stream, but actually taking advantage of um, all of the the screen that is available at the time that you're navigating the, the, you know, pay TV operators um, services. So it's not something that actually interrupts you as you're watching a program, but it's available in a, in a relevant interactive way 
um, around the pay TV operators' um, uh, current services. And being able to deliver that ad- addressable advertising, do you think that the the, the physical set top box? is intrinsic to that because obviously not everyone consumes their streaming in that way. That, that's that's true. Um, but you still have a, a lot of set-top boxes in, in people's homes, as I said, whether that's provided by pay TV operators, um, you know, traditional pay TV operators or uh, telcos, um, that that addressable set-top box is something that has, uh, you know, is, is already existing in people's homes and the ability to be able to um, expand on that um, connection I think is is pretty important. And that's obviously just one of the Hopper products. Um, what, what else interests you about Hopper? Well, look, you know, ultimately um, in my 20 years or so in, in pay TV, one of the things that was the, the unsolved problem, I guess, was advertisers who wanted to come on to pay TV, but, you know, ultimately um, you couldn't separate out the feed. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. When I was running Star TV in India, um, we had a very, very popular channel, Star Plus. I think it's still pretty popular. Um, but there were masses of advertisers who weren't able to advertise on on this uh, channel because it didn't have a separate feed for city level. So you had... Um, you know, housing companies, insurance companies, telcos that operated in specific areas and didn't want a national footprint. And no one's really been able to crack that city-level um, uh, advertising targeted solution. But, you know, now Hopper has come along as a way of being able to do that, not just at a city level but but at a very much more granular level, but also in terms of affinity, in terms of demographics, in terms of, of you know, various other, other um, you know, demographic groups that you can pull together. And obviously there's usually some incentive for directors. They end up with shares of this sort of company. Um, is Hopper a company that you would actually choose to invest your, or, or have you chosen to invest some of your own money in as well? Well, you know, Hopper is... Is frankly the only startup um, I have ever been involved in, um, either on the board or or as a potential investor. And for me, it is about an Australian technology company that is able to be a, a combination of sort of scaled up and uh, an ability to to really solve a problem that has been existing for for quite some time in a very simple elegant way so you know, again one of the great things about about the technology is it doesn't require uh, a specific build um, for a particular pay, pay TV operator so it is seamless to the viewer and really seamless to the to the pay TV operator as well um, so it really is able to unlock the the advertising opportunity in ways that becomes uh, very easy to, to do and has there been a investment round since you joined the board? Uh, yes, there has. And uh, did you participate? <laughs> that that isn't something that I'm I'm prepared to talk about. Um, but I why can, not? Well, well, because I can tell you that the important thing for me is to to not just have you know um, financial incentive, but it is about actually 
going back to to a purpose of, of trying to help Australian technology companies um, expand. So at the same time as I joined the board of, of Hopper, around the same time, I joined the board of Catapult Sports, which is an extraordinary sports technology company that is, at, you know, at a very different stage of its of its existence, but clearly is is an organisation that has massive global potential. Currently, uh, at least you know, 80, around eighty percent of its revenue already comes from from uh, the US, and the global potential of that of that technology is extraordinary. So, for me, it was about in my next chapter. Um, after the ABC, to look at what really matters to me. And what matters to me is uh, is going back to some of the things that I, I learned around pay TV and advertising and technology and sports and the intersection of, of all of that and being able to contribute in very meaningful ways, um, not just financially but in terms of an ability to make connections, um, to advise on different business models, and you know, trying to make things as um, as scalable as possible, particularly for advertisers in the small and medium sized um, businesses that have been locked out of TV advertising for for quite some time. And I suppose it's interesting you mentioned the sort of the fact that you you're you're sort of I guess developing this sort of you know portfolio of directorships, and I. I, I guess there's a the, the one tried and true pattern is you, you you see people in a sort of a series of big jobs and then they reach a point in their career where they 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 they, they move I guess to the to the directorships and usually that means that they're not going to be doing any one really big job again. Is 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 that it for you? Do you think are you now into <laughs> your your time of directorships or have you got I one think, more big? I you, think do you think? never say never. I mean, if you had, I, I always say to uh, you know women who were coming up through organisations that at the time I I was in high school or went to law school, did I ever in a million years think that I would be running the ABC? Um, you know, the idea of ruling anything in or out, I think, particularly when we're all going to live to 120, um, is is an extraordinary, um, you know, uh, thing to do. I think, you, you know, I, I'll certainly never say never. But at the same time, for, for me right now, the idea of, of really helping Australian companies go global um, and really thinking about ways in which I can contribute to the Australian um uh, business community in a in a way that is uniquely me um, I think is is what I'm I'm looking for now you spent uh, five years with Google on Wednesday night Australian time the bosses of Facebook Amazon Apple and Google they're all part of a, a congressional hearing into their market dominance um do you do you think those big four have got too much power should they be broken up Oh, that that is definitely something that I'm not wading into. But I will again. I will. Why not? You're free to speak now. You don't work for them anymore. Right. Because, you're you're an, not only you're a consumer, but you're an informed consumer. Surely, surely the world needs people like you who've seen it on the inside to speak I, your I, mind on I, that. I'll, I'll say a few things. One is that for um, most, you know, uh, most market opportunities, what you want is 
is potential for innovation and you want a potential for, for you know, real competition. And I will say that, you know, for, for example, a number of advertising agencies in particular want alternatives to Google, YouTube, Facebook in terms of, of digital advertising. And, you know, quite frankly, one of the massive opportunities for Hopper is to be able to deliver new digital video inventory in a, in a different way. And opening up that inventory, as you talk to ad agencies, one of the first things they say is, we want more inventory. <laughs> and we want more inventory that isn't controlled by one of the big guys. And so, you know, finding a way of doing that in a scalable um, solution is really important. Um, so, you know, that is the market opportunity. And we'll, we'll see how well Hopper um, succeeds in that, but but certainly that's the ambition. And you know, I, I also will will say that you know you do want to make sure that there is room for a lot of of startups and 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 solving sort of different problems. And and you know, my my time at, at Google, they were capable of doing many many things, but they can't do everything. <laughs> um, they've got priorities and and resource allocation issues as well. So there are definitely going to be areas where they might be able to solve the problem but they choose not to and so you know when you think about the space for for others in in the digital um, ad ecosystem it's important to you know figure out how do you play with with the big guys because they've always been big guys in every every industry I mean you know when I worked at News Corp it was pretty big <laughs> um, and so you know I've always worked for, for big guys um, it's it's just that those those positions change over time as as consumer preferences change and as different products develop. Michelle, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Next, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about those hearings in Washington. This year's Mumbrella Publish Awards has a total of 32 categories up for grabs, spanning digital, print, sales, journalism, marketing and more. So whether you work for a small or large publisher, there's something for you to enter. And don't forget, the entry fee has been lowered by $100 to support the publishing industry during these challenging times. All entries submitted before August 14th will cost just $250 per submission. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards for more information. On Wednesday night, Australian time, some of the most powerful and most rich men in the world got on a video call with Congress. And it wasn't just any old Zoom call. It was an antitrust hearing designed to explore whether it's time to limit the power of the big four, Facebook, Google, Amazon and Apple. So Hannah, long anticipated, slightly anticlimactic in that they weren't there in person. But what went down? Yeah, very long anticipated. I think if you hadn't seen a think piece about this leading up to it, then you definitely weren't on the internet. It's also the first time that those four men, as you said, the CEOs and founders of those companies had all kind of, in theory, been in the same room for a, that sort of event. 
um, it had some pretty big, there were some pretty big possibilities going into it. You know, Google would have had to spin out its ad tech business. Amazon would have had to stop selling its own branded goods. Um, Apple and Google would have had to stop selling their own apps and app stores. And Facebook might have had to spin out Instagram and WhatsApp. So this was kind of what was being laid on the table at the beginning of the hearing. It was a little bit anticlimactic in the sense that we don't really have anything to go off yet. Um, there's going to be a, a report following and from there there'll be some solutions. But the final conclusion was that they definitely all have way too much power and I think they ended it with this must end. So it was a little bit ominous and it's going to be really interesting to see where the reports come from that. And I think if you are those four men who, from what I understand, put forward pretty good arguments, you know, appealing to we're good for America, at least we're not China. Um, I don't think they'll be particularly happy that that didn't really get across the line. And I do wonder whether, a bit like when a journalist doesn't know how to finish an analysis piece, they end it with, only time will tell. <laughs> feels like maybe the politician's version of that is, this must end. Um, and look, and I, I guess I was thinking particularly about Google and Brittany, I'm going to bring, bring you in for your thoughts. I mean, it's like, it, it is in many ways a classic monopoly it controls both ends of the programmatic advertising chain. So it's on the buying side, it's on the selling side, controls, dominates search, you know, owns YouTube, the biggest video platform. Um, there's becoming a quite strong argument that just Google needs breaking up, isn't it? Well, I mean, there is a strong argument that Google should be broken up like the rest of the tech giants as well. The question is what that would even look like, though. I mean, what what would that involve? Would that actually get the same results for brands? I mean, the counter side to that argument is, well, brands are on Google, on Facebook, are spending money with those platforms simply because it works. So if you if you take that into account and then you think, okay, well, how, how do we minimize the power of those platforms whilst still maintaining the results that they inevitably give? that's, I think, a much harder question to answer. And I think, I mean, when I think of Facebook, for example, there seems to be a real disconnect between the level of power that Facebook has and their perceived responsibility as a result. I mean, you think about the origins of Facebook and it's Mark Zuckerberg in his uni dorm making some pretty sexist website to rank women on campus and suddenly, you know, when I say suddenly, you know, within 10, 15 years, it's a platform that is arguably more powerful than governments and wields an incredible amount of, you know, social, political, economic power. And it feels like where Facebook is at and the power that it has is kind of out in front. Facebook trying to catch up to that almost and retroactively try and rein that in is behind. And then behind Facebook again is kind of regulatory responses. So, yeah, I mean, I, th I think we're at a point where the consensus is that this isn't broadly a good thing, whatever that means. But how you rein it in and what impact that will have, I think, is a completely different thing again. And it, it does feel like maybe the mood music has changed a bit. You know, the the... the the weight of public opinion or, you know, maybe the public don't care, but the, the weight of informed opinion is beginning to get to that sense that, 
yes, you've just got this business dominance or business, um, uh, you know, monopolistic behaviour, but also some really serious things happening with, I hate the phrase fake news because it's the obviously the phrase that, that kind of lazily gets used by Donald Trump, but um, this idea of the spread of false news, false information, not not just across Facebook, but, you know, the rabbit holes people get led down in YouTube, you know, where, uh, you know, conspiracy theorists get sucked into becoming conspiracy theorists because the algorithm shows them more and more of that stuff. Um, Brett, do you, do you think the platforms need to take a little bit more responsibility for what they're doing to people's minds? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you're completely right that the, the general consensus around whether or not social media and, you know, if we look at Facebook and Twitter, for example, are quote unquote, you know, good things or offer a net good. It felt like even, you know, a couple of years ago, there was still concerns around the proliferation of, you know, fake news. And I really like the argument that there's no such thing as fake news because therefore it's not news, but, you know, of false information of things that are concerning to democracies, of things that are concerning to elections, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there was concerns around those things, but it felt like when you thought of Facebook and Twitter, they still seemed like, you know, shiny, fun places to work, shiny, fun places to be online, you know, good in terms of connecting people and, you know, this this idea of establishing a community. It feels now like the idea of Facebook and Twitter as a community is quite far down on the list of what we think of when we think of what those platforms are actually serving us and serving as. So I think you're right that, you know, it... <laughs> it's almost encountering a reputational issue now, whereas, you know, it could talk its way out of some of that kind of dodgy, more murky stuff when it was still viewed as primarily a place to connect with family and friends and be together. Now it's much harder to defend, you know, keeping that kind of information or misinformation up when overall, you know, its reputation is where it's at. Hannah. I think you're definitely right as well. There's been a real change or I felt a real change in kind of the dialogue around this. One of the points they made in the hearing, and it was quite late in the piece, was that even if Facebook had perfect strategies in play to get rid of these, you know, fake news, if you want to use that term, videos or videos of distressing content, they're too big to do it effectively. So even, you know, they've obviously faced a lot of concerns that they don't have those things in place. But even if they did, it takes, you know, hours for them to remove these videos. And by that point, it's gone halfway around the world. So I think what's going to come into play here is it doesn't necessarily matter if they're trying to do the right thing, which is obviously a big thing that's up for debate. What does matter is if they're even if it's even possible for them to do the right thing. If we look at the Twitter hack, which happened a couple of weeks ago now, the biggest clap back to that was that Twitter took so long to respond to it and their response in the end was just to take or just to stop the abilities of all those accounts to even post, which was then questioned as to whether that was a good defence and whether that was the right move in that case. But what else are they meant to do? They're a massive corporation and a massive platform. In order for them to be able to stop this stuff, just putting their foot down might be the easiest way to do it, whether that's the right way to do it or not. So I think, 
yeah, it's going to be quite interesting to see Facebook try and prove that it's effective at being able to stop fake news when essentially that's what it's kind of become. And Britt, one more development this week in Australia, the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, um, is going after Google for allegedly misleading its users about the extent it tracks them. It is. I think the most important or interesting thing to think about when we think about ACCC litigation against Google or, you know, Facebook or ACCC investigation and litigation really against any big company is there's always a question mark over will it actually do anything? What impact will this have long term? And I think ACCC Chair Rod Sims has done a really good job recently of campaigning this idea that these things add up, these things set precedents. Our overseas, you know, counterparts will be looking to us just as we look to them. And hopefully, if similar watchdogs around the world are doing similar things and have similar priorities, internationally, there'll be some kind of movement or change. And Hannah, it's worth just just I- explaining the detail of what exactly it is that the ACCC are alleging this time around. Yeah, it's um, it's quite interesting. They're not saying that Google kind of, they're not saying that Google is misusing data and they're not saying uh, that Google's doing anything particularly nefarious. But what they're saying is that when it was back in 2016, I think that there were some changes to Google's platform, which basically allowed them to take your personal info as a user of Google and combine it with tracking data that they get from advertising so up until that point their the tracking data hadn't been able to be connected to any personal information back in 2016 they started making the moves to connect those two the ACCC is alleging that when Google first gave you a pop-up back in 2016 and said hey we're making some changes do you approve them it didn't provide enough information and it didn't give users enough of a chance to say nope I don't want to do this Google, however, is obviously saying, yes, they did. They're also saying that they've made their tools so simple now that at any point you can log into your Google account and you can change what data they use of yours and what data they're able to access. So Google's saying, not only did we make it pretty clear, we've also allowed users to then go in and change it. What I found really interesting when I was reporting on this was contrary to the ACCC piece, which kind of pointed to Google as this monster that's taking all your health data and which it isn't because it can't access health data. But the initial ACCC piece said it's taking all your health data and slamming it in with advertising. You're going to be targeted everywhere you go. If you go back to 2016 when this move first happened, every single headline in the US and in you know some of the other big markets in the world was like, Google is amazing. They're finally allowing people to take control of their data. They're giving you the option. So I thought that was quite an interesting juxtaposition. Um, And the other really big thing that Google has pointed to is why has it taken the ACCC this long to lodge this issue when the problem happened between 2016 and 2018? I guess it's only just recently dawned on people that if you search on doorknobs, then knobs are going to follow you all over the internet. Next, Optus says yes to a new start. Zoe, a new brand positioning for Optus this week. Yeah, Optus launched its new brand platform. It starts with yes this week. 
It is the result of a project pitch that was opened back in January. And at the time I had heard that it was for the brand positioning ahead of new Optus CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin entering the business in April and that the pitch list was Special Group New Zealand, Bear Meets Eagle, Eagle on Fire, which is the creative shop run by Michael Walker, who was the creative at 72 and Sunny when they were the lead agency on Optus, and also TBWA. Now, I should say that my understanding is that the result of this pitch with the new brand platform being created by Special Group New Zealand has not affected Optus's relationships with its roster of agencies nor the agencies that were on the pitch list. However, they always say that. They do, but I wanted to say it myself. And the reason why is my understanding is that Special Group New Zealand has launched this brand platform with this piece of work that we'll discuss in a minute, but there's a wider body of work under this brand platform that will come from those agencies. So this, it starts with yes message. I guess it's not that different from yes, which was has always been one of the central things around the Optus brand. Uh, Special Group New Zealand CEO and CCO Tony Bradbourne actually said that they took the yes sort of brand mark that's been in Optus for a long time and actually wanted to explore what it can mean and what it can represent for clients and customers in different aspects of the business. And Melissa Hopkins, the Optus head of marketing, sort of said that the way that they've done it with this platform, it starts with yes, kind of brings a sense of, you know, opportunity and positivity into the brand. And I do quite like it because you can see how it will apply to different aspects of the business from Optus Sport through to like B2B marketing. Well, should we, we should start, I guess we should talk about the, the, the brand ad that kicks it off. And in classic form, it, it, you, you often seem to see when there's a new brand positioner, an epic 90 second version of an ad that, you know, the, the, the budget might allow to go on TV once before the 30 second cut down is mainly what the public sees. Um, so we've, we've, we, we indeed have a, a 90 second epic. Yeah, the ad is a group of children in an apartment building, clearly still stuck in their COVID lockdown, building a giant car racetrack throughout all of their apartments, up and down the stairs, through a dad's like working from home setup. And we can't play a clip for you because it's set to the B-52's Rock Lobster and we don't want to get sued, but it's very catchy. Um, and I think the ad itself reflects like a freshness that I think Optus needed because previously I feel like their work has been kind of scattered in its style and a bit in its messaging because they do work with a roster of agencies as opposed to one like lead creative agency. So I think the way the ad is, it sort of introduces that platform and leaves it open for Optus to sort of explore it and bring it into different elements of its marketing going forward. Now, here's another question for you then, um, which is the sort of the, it starts with yes, is sort of, I would say, I would argue maybe post-rationalised 
at the end when you actually do flash back and you you see the note to the to the new kid presumably the new kid on the block with the little note saying uh i have a plan want to talk question mark yes no so clearly the whole idea then unfolded with it starts with yes and i i wonder do you do you think the creative idea really did start with let's start with this note or was it the wonderful collaboration of all of the kids and then we'll kind of crowbar in the strategy which way around do you think it was i think the platform came first the strategist will be very delighted you said that i'm sure well i think this ad i mean you don't need to what can you show that is optus like you can't really show cables getting put into the ground. You can't really show telephone towers. That's not going to be interesting to a consumer to look at. Whereas this is eye-catching and it's fun and it introduces that platform Like it intro- and it introduces it in a kind of fun kind of way. So you're not going to get some like big emotional like 90-second epic like you – described before and then just sort of be left with the platform I think I still feel like the platform is very strong throughout so it sounds like um it's a yes from you it is a yes from me next red ink in agency land So we're now into results season and it's very much a COVID tinged results season. Over the next two or three weeks, the listed companies have to tell the market just how bad things are. That's both on the ASX and globally. Hannah, let's start with Omnicom and IPG. IPG, obviously the holding group responsible for agencies, including Initiative, Mullenlo and RGA, uh, they revealed a pretty harsh loss for the second quarter of 2020, um, dropping 45 million US dollars um, from their profit of 170 million the year before, which, yeah, is over. It's over 100% drop. It's a huge shrink in their um, in their figures. And I think Perhaps the most concerning thing for investors there is CEO Michael Roth said that by no means has this been the worst. He said there's a lot more cost cuttings expecting to come and that, you know, these figures are going to stay down for quite a while. Revenue for the quarter was down 12%. um, And I think revenue for the first half was down 7.4%. So that obviously looks a little bit better when you consider that Q1 wasn't necessarily impacted by COVID. It's also interesting that their shares have fallen 20% since the beginning of the year. So shareholders also not super happy with them. And uh, bad news at Twitter too. Yeah, bad news at Twitter indeed. Twitter's ad revenue fell 23% um, compared to the, for the second quarter. That's compared to the same quarter of the year prior. That could be a combination of things, though. Twitter has been hit by the same advertiser boycott that Facebook has, um, and Twitter didn't say how much of that decline was due to the boycott and how much of it was due to COVID. They're also kind of struggling because they have seen a massive jump in their users. I think they gained 20 million of their daily active users, which is how they measure their users, uh, across the June quarter. So what CEO Jack Dorsey has said is that they might look at a subscription model which I don't know that I know anyone who would pay to use Twitter, but it's quite an interesting theory. 
Look, it is, but it's also worrying for Twitter, isn't it? If their audience is growing and their revenues are going down, then clearly the amount they can make per user is plummeting, which isn't great. No, not great at all. And it's kind of, you know, a much bigger version of the same problem that we're seeing media companies hit. You know, their readerships and their viewerships are up, but their ad revenue is down. So, yeah, it's going to be quite interesting to see how they can continue that. And then back into the agencies, Omnicon, which is the holding group of DDB, TBWA and OMD, their profits fell 89% for the second quarter of 2020. Um and net profit fell even further. And they've also revealed that they've had to cut over 6,000 staff in the last three months, which is obviously a massive number when you look at that. And again, they said, you know, yes, it looks bad, but there's probably more to come. Next, our editor, Vivian Kelly, chats to Mikey Robbins. We're joined on the Mumbrella cast now by Mikey Robbins. Some of you may know him from his media career, but most recently he is the author of Reprehensible, Polite Histories of Bad Behaviour. Mikey, welcome. Hi, Vivian. Nice to talk to you. Now, listen, I did mention there that you you had a bit of a media career. Tell me, did the media career inspire you to look into people's reprehensible pasts? Oh, well, you know, one of the things I sat down before I wrote this book is I went, oh, what can get through legal? And which is why I, why I decided to set most of the book in, um, before the 20th century. But, I mean, look, yes, our media is full of rogues and I'm, I suppose I was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so what did inspire you to, to write this book? Was there one in particular historical anecdote that you knew that then you wanted to look into further? Is it the idea of acting reprehensibly that appeals to you? What is it? Well, it was. Uh, it sort of came from my, my first book, which was called Seven Deadly Sins and One Very Naughty Fruit, was a sort of offbeat uh, history of food as seen through the seven deadly sins. And while I was researching that, I kept coming across some stories of you know, people that were heroes of mine and, and not, not so heroes of mine. I didn't quite fit that book, but I think it was um, while I was researching Catherine the Great, I came across two stories that that had to be told, and that was that was the starting point. Um, the first one being that uh, the women of the court of of Romanov, uh, if they wanted to get in the mood, they would hire royal ticklers, which were men, unfortunately eunuchs or women, who would tickle them with feathers while they sang dirty and bawdy songs just to get them in the mood to um, make love to their husband. And the other thing which I found was interesting too was um, Catherine the Great was an, was an amazing woman. She was you know, incredibly intelligent. Um, her husband, the, the Tsar, was, was, was an idiot, a man who actually court-martialed a rat and had it hanged. That's the sort of guy he was. Right. Where, where, she spoke, where she spoke six different languages and carried on a massive correspondence with all the great thinkers of, of, the, of the Enlightenment world. And look, there are all those stories about her sexual behaviour. And yes, she was a very sexually active person. But a lot of the more bizarre ones were actually spread by her son, who was trying to wipe out her legacy. Basically, the thing is, she never died having sex with a horse. She actually went far more prosaically. She had a stroke on the, on the, on the loo. She, she, she went Elvis style. 
Now, did you watch the Stan series about Catherine the Great? Um, I I did. It was um, it was it was very floral, wasn't it? It was it was it was, it was sort of like uh, St Petersburg nine hundred two one zero. Well, that could be its marketing tagline. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, don't get me wrong. Her her life was full of intrigue and and mystery and and prodigious amount of lovers. Um, I, I always love the fact that they sort of alluded to it. But to become a lover of Catherine's, you had to be um, a young man of certain virility. You had to pass a, a test by her Scottish doctor, and then one of her sort of trusted ladies in waiting would take you out for a test drive to see if you're up for the job. Um, no, I, I did watch the stand, and I also watched recently on the History Channel the the the, the documentary series on, on the Romanovs, which was fantastic. Now, your book has endorsements from other uh, media personalities, including Adam Hills, Matt O'Kine, Tom Gleeson, and Will Anderson, and they sort of allude to the fact that if history was taught like this in school, uh, children might be more engaged. Do you think that the way that uh, the education system and, and indeed the media talks about history uh, needs a bit of a shake-up? Well, yes and no. I mean, let's face it, I'm, you know, I'm, in my 50s now, when I was taught history at school, it was great dates and battles. And that was pretty much it. And I, in fact, this came from the first book, and it's also in this book as well. It's the old saying that, um, it's like the David Bowie line from uh, the album Low, always crashing in the same car. And I looked at what is reprehensible in our behaviour now, not the great mass murderers and killers, but the, you know, the, the, the more venal. And then realise you can draw a correlation that we've always been pretty much lustful, um, vain, and so so to me it's a, it's the social side of history that I, I find it's the stories that fall between the cracks that can often give a a glance into how people lived and and why we're still like that today. Which is a rather wordy way of saying I really like digging up dirty old stories from the past. <laughs> So do you consider yourself now uh, an author more than a, a media personality? Can you see yourself getting back on a permanent TV or radio gig? Oh, I'd, I'd, if, if one came along, it would be lovely. I've, I've never considered myself a, a media personality. I've never been like one of those people who, um, you know, appear in those sort of magazines. I'm, I'm just a guy who was lucky enough to find a TV job where all I had to do was turn up once a week and read the papers and crack a few jokes. Which, you know, it's basically, I always used to describe Good News Week as, as a dinner party without any alcohol. Um, and, and radio, which which I love. But I, look, I have to confess, I really love writing. And it's, I was talking to someone the other day about it. Everything I've done up until I wrote my first book two years ago has been collaborative. I've always been part of a breakfast team or a, or a, or a panel show. And or, or even if you're making something on your own, it's, it's still part of, you know, you've got a producer and, and you've got, you know, whereas with this, it was just me and, and my long-suffering editor. <laughs> and and it's, uh, it's sort of weird to, like, be working in a situation where, as opposed to going into a studio or going on location, you're behind the same desk for four or five hours a day for about eight months. And um, I actually really enjoyed it. Much, I've, I've got to tell my... Can I tell my favourite story about about writing? Yes, please when, do. When my first book came out, I was very proud because I'd actually been sitting on the idea for quite some time. In fact, the genesis of the idea was a, was a documentary series for ITV. 
that fell apart. And then my manager said, why don't you write a book? So yeah, it was eight months of writing a book and then it came out and I was flying up to Brisbane. <laughs> Remember flying? And <laughs> I, I, was, I was heading up to Brisbane to do my first you know, in-store appearance and, and, and so I was at the coffee shop at uh, Sydney Airport and the uh, a woman uh, serving, making my coffee, said, oh, I'm a very big fan. I said, oh, that's nice, very nice. She said, what are you doing now? And I said quite proudly, I've just written my first book. And she went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh it's come to that. I was writing. Um, but I, um, if, if I could just, I mean, I'll never say no to anything, but quite frankly, um, if I could just sit around and pop out a few of these quirky history books every couple of years, I'd be a very happy man. Do you think a program like Good News Week would work in 2020 or do you think it was a product of its time? Oh, I, I, think, I think satire always works and um, there's, you know, there's something to be said about watching a bunch of smart asses make fun of the uh, rich and powerful people in front of them and I'm more than happy to be part of that. Uh, apart from the satire, the one thing that I look back at the various permutations on um, Good News Week over the years, whether it was the ABC or the first time at Channel 10 or, or then <laughs> Zion enough coming back six years later and doing another <laughs> four years, was I could looking back and see that, you know, almost the generations of, of comedians that got their, you know, got their, well, their break, their break, but the, 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 the amount of young comedians that came through that show and are still working now and still doing great work. And, and that's obviously not my claim to fame. It's, it's, it's Ted Robinson who, um, who was the executive producer of that show and, as as I walk around my apartment, I go, Ted bought me that. Ted bought me that. <laughs> Actually, Ted bought me this apartment. Um, yeah, so it, it wasn't just the fact that it was, it was satirical, which, which I think we, you know, we need now more than ever. Mind you, there is an argument to be made that um, Trump has almost taken us to a post-satirical world. But um, but it, it's it's that staging ground, you know, because there were four guests every week of churning through young young new comedians, which, which you know, and a lot of those young new comedians are still working now and still doing great work. And would you, I mean, assuming there wasn't a, a pandemic and you could still fly around as you alluded to before, mm. would you consider doing uh, stand-up again or, or do you like the behind-the-scenes book writing where you just get to argue with yourself and your editor? Um, so I, I came late to stand-up. My, my wife called it my midlife crisis. <laughs> I'd, um, I'd, I was about to turn 50 and I'd, I'd never done – like a lot of people I knew and respected, I came into the business as, as a writer, as a sketch writer, and then that got me on radio and then then I got you know, ended up on Triple J. But uh, So I hit 49 and said, well, I really should get this monkey off my back. So I went out and did my first ever stand-up gig and it did not go well and I – was was greatly chastened by that, and then went off and, and worked and wrote. And uh, I do enjoy it. I, I it's not my first love stand up, but I do enjoy it. What I quite honestly, the great thing about stand up is, is is the camaraderie of uh, of comedians backstage. It's um people have this misconception that it that it's a that it's a bitchy world, and it's not. Everyone's incredibly supportive of, of each other, and um, generally wants everyone else to do well. Do you have a plan for your third book, Mikey? I, I've got a working title at the moment, Idiots, Follies and Misadventures, <laughs> The Fine Art of Being Wrong. And this came from a story that I came across and it was too late to put in this book. But uh, I was, I'm was i thinking of a chapter called You Had One Job. 
you know, you had one job. Uh, <clears throat> best example I can give is uh, the night of Lincoln's assassination at Ford Theatre. His bodyguard actually left his post to get a better view of the play, then decided he didn't like the play and went to the pub. Hmm. And that's how um, that's how John Wilkes Booth actually made it into uh, Lincoln's area in the theatre and shot him. Or speaking of assassinations, Leopold Lotka, who was the chauffeur to uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand that fateful day in Sarajevo, who, long story short, took a wrong turn in the car stalled right out the front of the corner where Princip, the assassin, who had who gone home thinking it was all over, was sitting having a cup of tea. And if he hadn't taken that wrong turn, if the car hadn't stalled, World War I might have started under different circumstances. So I like those moments where, I think that's what the next book's going to be, where in fact, in fact, I'm, I'm working with a guy called Paul Wilson at the moment, who's a, actually a proper historian from Oxford University, and we're working on a podcast called And the Rest is History, which is around moments like that where history turns on, on bizarre moments of, of, of human folly and, and silliness, like, um, like the fact that, that Columbus, when he set out his charts to go to the, the New World, never quite managed to uh, rationalise the difference between a Persian mile and a Roman mile. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a thing that, you know, we're, we're taught history in schools that, like, it's this sort of bold march, but actually it's quite often a lot of stuff-ups that we tend to get away with as a species. All right, Mikey Robbins, author of Reprehensible, Polite Histories of Bad Behaviour, thank you for joining us. My absolute pleasure. Before we go, in a year that has challenged every corner of the world, 2020 represents a pivotal moment for the finance industry. Lock in your tickets from Umbrella's Virtual Finance Marketing Summit on September the 23rd for the latest trends and research delivered by the biggest names, agencies and brands in the business. Speakers include Wiser, ME Bank, My State Bank, The Royals, and 303 Mullenlow. Tickets start from just $55 and you can go to mumbrella.com.au slash finance for more information. That's it for this week, though. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Toodle pep.